Big things come in small packages. I often have heard that particular comment. Tommy Plotner, writing in the universe today, made that statement about a telescope. And she was asking at the time, have you been wanting to get your hands on a telescope that is easy to use, very portable, and best of all, only costs $55? And she says, sales executive, I'm here to tell you, when you decide to play with a Celestron C65 Mini Mix, you'll soon find out that big things really do come in small packages. She went on to say that this Celestron C65 is a tiny little creature. However, the moment you lay eyes on it, quality screams right out of it. Raven black finished perfection, pristine Celestron, Celestron optics and deep quality coatings. Other people have taken that comment Big things come in small packages, and they have applied it to a car. And I don't know if anybody is buying a car this time of year. It tends to be the time of year when a lot of people, maybe more so in the past than today, would have thought, oh yeah, we'll begin the new year with a brand new car, and the model is waiting in the showroom for them. I wouldn't have thought that you'll be buying a Kia Picanto. But if you are, then we're told there's a lot of kit in there and a driving experience that really belongs to a car that would be a class above this particular model. And with recent facelifts and all of that, you have more efficient engines there. You have improved onboard technology that's been added to the range. You have a seven-year warranty. What's not to like? And apparently there's practicality all around in this Kia Picanto. Enough space in the back for two adults to sit in relative comfort. I'd like to see that put to the test, of course. The boot measures in, we're told, at 255 litres, and that's more than what you'll have in a mini three-door that belongs to a class above. And so we can go on and talk about Apple CarPlay connectivity and cruise control and auto-folding mirrors and reversing camera and many other bells and whistles in the package, all proving that big things come in small packages. What we can also say today is that in terms of the Bible text that we are turning to in Psalm 119, the verse 151, well, that applies certainly as a contender for the tag of Big things coming in small packages. We're only looking at five words today in our English Bible for our motto text for 2024. So the text is small, it's straightforward, and yet I'm totally convinced that if we can only grab its message this morning, and if it can drop down into our minds and drop into our spirits, we'll be able to squeeze no end of encouragement out of it. Here we've got a mantelpiece display. We have a motto text, and we're taking that for this incoming year. And we have a momentous word, all squeezed into five words. Thou art near, O Lord. Now, that deserves to be remembered, to be meditated upon, even to be framed, or at least prominently displayed in our homes. Such is the degree of sheer comfort that's in it. Thou art near, O Lord. 
So, evidently, the nearness of God is our theme for this morning, and we trust will be our portion right through the year 2024. First of all, we're thinking about the reality of the nearness of God. The reality of the nearness of God, thou art near, the psalmist says here, O Lord. Now, God is near because of, first of all, His character. One of the leading characteristics, and if you're in theology class, you'll be told in this kind of terminology, one of God's leading characteristics is His omnipresence, the fact that He is everywhere present. Or more properly and accurately defined, this omnipresence of God is this truth, that God being everywhere fills every point of space with His entire being. Now, this attribute of God called omnipresence is one that's included in God's infinity, the fact that He doesn't have beginning or end or He is immeasurable. When you apply that infinity to time, then you've got, of course, eternity. God is eternal. That is, He's exalted above and beyond the limitations of time. But when infinity is applied to space, then you've got omnipresence. God is omnipresent in that He is exalted above every limitation of space. Now, the limitations of space are distance and size and form, The fact that a human body cannot be in all places at one time has to be in one place at a given time, but none of those limitations apply to our great God. That's what makes Him, in part, God. What an amazing truth divine omnipresence is that God is everywhere, not only everywhere in His power, upholding, governing every creature that He has made in the universe, but He is everywhere with all of His being. And if He is there everywhere present, He is everywhere with all of His wonderful attributes and virtues. Let's take some Scriptures. We'll begin with Deuteronomy 4 in the verse 39. Know therefore this day, and consider it in thine heart, that the Lord, He is God in heaven above, and upon the earth beneath there is none else. In Psalm 139, verse 7 to 12, that famous psalm where David is saying, God is everywhere. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, into the grave there, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. And then Jeremiah, in chapter 23, in verse 23 and 24, God is asking the question, Am I a God at hand, saith the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him, saith the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth 
saith the Lord. Now, when the child of God realizes that his God is everywhere present, he's understandably filled with awe and filled with amazement, with wonder and worship because that fills in our understanding about the great difference there is between God, the Creator, and us, the creature, and it should fill our souls with reverence and a spirit of worship. Solomon is opening his new temple, and he's dedicating it to the Lord, and he's wanting the people of Israel who are going to be coming up to the temple and worship Him in that place. He wants them to know the kind of a God that they're going to be worshiping. And so in 1 Kings 8 and 27, he says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house that I have built God's omnipresence is that virtue that allows Him to be present in every point in space with the whole of His being. It's not in the way that a gas could fill a room, or even you open a bottle of perfume, as no doubt you have done over the past number of days, or maybe a bottle of aftershave, and soon those molecules of perfume and the aftershave, they travel, and they go through, and they fill the house, and you're smelling it everywhere you go in the room that you used it in, and maybe through the house, but God is not equally diffused through space. It's true that He's in this house as we assemble here today. It's true that He'll be in our homes when we return to them after this meeting has taken place. But the key point to remember is that God, being everywhere, fills every point of space with His entire being when the children of God worship in their churches. We're not talking about we have a part or an aspect of God and somebody else over there in a different location has a different part or a different aspect of God. Rather, we have all of God. Now, to dig further down into the detail here, God is inherently present everywhere, all the time. In the light of Psalm 139 that we have just referred to, one of the Puritan Stephen Sharnock gave this definition of God's omnipresence. Omnipresence is that whereby He hath neither bounds nor limitation. He is from the height of the heavens to the bottom of the deeps, in every point of the world and in the whole circle of it, yet not limited by it, but beyond it. And if you're thinking that's hard to get, well, that's very understandable because we're talking about God, not ourselves here. Mark Jones has written, God is perfectly and powerfully present in every place. He fills all space as God. God, there is nowhere where God is not present. Now, we are finite. We are limited creatures. We can't be present at more than one place at any given time. And sometimes it seems as if we're not even present at all. 
say in a marriage, there's a wife and she's waited all day to share something that she believes to be really significant with her husband and she's waiting for him to come home and he comes in through the door and immediately she begins to unload what she's been coiled up like a spring wanting to share all day only to realize, oh yes, he's there. He is physically present. But mentally, he's on a galaxy far away and hasn't heard a single thing that she has shared. At other times, as finite creatures who, again, can only exist in one place at one time, we're here, but we're wishing we were somewhere else. Maybe some exotic location. We've heard of somebody who's gone away for a holiday, and we're thinking, oh, it would be wonderful to be there. Maybe this time of year especially, it would be glorious to be there. That's not the way that God is. God never wishes that he could be someplace that he isn't because he is fully everywhere all the time. Edward Lee wrote that God is neither shut up in any place nor shut out from any place. And back to Jeremiah 23 and 24 and that famous preacher A.W. Tozer said of that, God fills heaven and earth just as the ocean fills a bucket which has been submerged in it a mile down. The bucket is full of the ocean, but the ocean surrounds the bucket in all directions. And that's a fair enough description of the fullness of God, except that even that vast ocean, no matter how large it is, it has boundaries, and God doesn't have those boundaries. Again, another preacher, Puritan preacher, George Swinnock said, God is an infinite being. He is without bounds or limits, measures or degrees. God is a sphere whose center is everywhere and whose circumference is nowhere. God is everywhere in His whole essence. At every moment, He filleth, Ephesians 1 and 23, all in all. Now, let me just say as a point of application here, as a child of God, God's omnipresence should be a delightful truth. Because then we know that our good shepherd, He will never leave, He will never forsake His sheep. But then the second truth about God's omnipresence is not only is He everywhere present, but God is also infinitely present. What I mean by that is, would it bring real comfort to your heart to know that God is always present, but only, but only in the same way that your internet or mobile phone service is present? How many times have you needed to download a document or make a call and it won't go through? You don't have the reception. Oh, your connection service may say that you're connected, but there's not enough power in the signal to do anything, go anywhere. You're on E rather than 4G. And we'll not mention 5G today, but God is not like your internet or your mobile phone service. He's able Philippians 4 and 19, to supply all our need. 
according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus, and to do that every single place. Again, Mark Jones said about God's infinite presence, the omnipresence of God refers not only to his presence everywhere, but also to his infinite and powerful influence over all things in all places. All things in heaven and earth are subject to him by his power, since he providentially sustains all things, to preserve all things according to all his perfections. He must be present everywhere. So, inherently, he is present everywhere. He is infinitely present everywhere, and he is also intimately present, intimately present. It's God, according to Psalm 139 and verse 13, who knit us together in the womb. He was there. It's God, according to John 1 and 14, and we think of that at this time of year in particular, who became flesh in the incarnation at Bethlehem as a babe and dwelt amongst us. God's omnipresence was put on center stage in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is Emmanuel, God, with us. And could we not say, as we look to Bethlehem, in the days when He came amongst us, Thou art near, O Lord. And again, we quote a preacher who said, in the presence of Christ, the omnipresence of God toward His people comes to its intended goal. I refer to another Puritan's writings, John, George Swinnock's. And in his preface to the writings on the blessed and boundless God, Stephen Yule wrote, amazingly, this boundless God draws near to us in the incarnation. He came so close that He bore our sin and shame and tasted death for us, Hebrews 2 and 9. We placed ourselves where this boundless God deserves to be on the throne. This boundless God placed Himself where we deserve to be on the cross. His forgiveness supersedes our sinfulness. His merit eclipses our guilt, and His righteousness hides our vileness. His abundant mercy blots out our multitude of transgressions. So Christ came, dwelt among us. And as he left in that ascension into heaven in Matthew 28 and 20, he promised those disciples who were watching and gazing into heaven, no doubt their hearts were feeling a little bit dispirited at the least. But he's saying, I will always be with you. And he's present by his promised Holy Spirit with us today. John 14, 16 to 18. And so we have this omnipresence of God. Wonderful truth. Thou art near, O Lord. 
But I need to put in a word of caution before we leave this opening point here, because as Dr. Cooper points out, this does not mean that God is present in the same sense in every creature. God dwells in every creature, but not equally or in the same sense. Let's get an example in human relationships here. Two people in the one home are physically close to each other, interacting all the time, but those same two people are far away, a million miles apart in their spirit and in their faith, because you've got a believing husband, and you've got an unbelieving wife, or vice versa, and they're living right next to each other, but they're far apart in respect to everything that is lasting, everything that is important, everything that is eternal. They are pools apart. And God is not present in the same sense in every one of His creatures. He doesn't dwell with the unsaved as He does with the saved. And the difference between His presence there, between the unsaved and the righteous, is of great significance. God is present among the unbelieving, carnal, worldly-minded persons in this world. He is there. He is near to them. He sees them. But this is a presence or a nearness that we need to describe in terms of anger and wrath and indignation and curse because He is totally against them. On the other hand, the presence of God in His children is not only that He's in them, but He's with them, and He's working for them every second of every day. Back in Sunday school, you probably learned it as well as I did then. God is always near me, hearing what I say, knowing all my thoughts and deeds, all my work and play, exactly what the psalmist is here saying. Thou art near, O Lord. Don Fortner, who died, I think, last year, but was the former Baptist pastor of Danville in Kentucky, he said, perhaps the most serious, sobering thing my mind has ever contemplated is the fact that I am always in the presence of God. God cannot be shut out anywhere. Everything I think, say, and do is done in the immediate presence of God. This fact Fortner said, should cause me to be filled with reverence and godly fear and with great joy too. God is present everywhere to see and preserve and comfort His people. And so much so that Fortner took up his pen and he, he wrote a hymn. God's omnipresence, we adore our Lord is everywhere. A God at hand to guard His own, our God is always near Him. Through the deep waters we must pass, and heavy burdens bear. Through fiery trials we must go, but God is always near. God's omnipresence gives us peace and fills our hearts with cheer. He will sustain our souls with grace. Our God is always near. He's near because of His character. He's near because of His covenant. Thou art near. O Lord, back in eternity past, in a realm that we cannot penetrate apart from what God has revealed, God drafted a covenant 
to the glory of his name that involved him purchasing a salvation for the people who would live upon the earth. And to fulfill the terms of that covenant that he drafted, our Lord Jesus Christ was obligated to come to this world and to come near to us. Thou art near, O Lord. And you can write that over Bethlehem. Thou art near, O Lord. As the gift of the triune God, Jesus is sent into the world, proof positive. God had remembered His holy covenant, Luke 1 and verse 72, remembered the oath that He had sworn to the father Abraham, Luke 1, 73. He came as God's gift for a covenant of the people, Isaiah 42 and 6. He came as the messenger of the covenant, Malachi 3 and 1. And so lying in that manger in Bethlehem is not a merely private person or a highly gifted individual who would captivate many. He is the servant of Jehovah, the eternal God, through all of history, and his service would be that as the mediator of the new covenant, Hebrews 12 and 24. He will mediate. He'll be the go-between between God and man who have faithlessly deserted him and who have hatefully opposed him, and that mediation will include redemption by blood on Calvary's cross. So the eternal Son of God came into this world through the vehicle of the incarnation to restore friendship between fallen, guilty, corrupt, hostile people and a holy God. That is salvation. That is life. That is bliss. That is glory. That is Him drawing near from eternity into time from indescribable glory to a cursed cross, from that cross right into our circumstances, tracking us down by the power of His Holy Spirit with a purpose to save us from our sins. Let's take an example of that. Zacchaeus is a prime one. All that happened to bring Christ to Zacchaeus was not just a collection of chance occurrences. Jigsaw pieces had randomly assembled themselves. But God is drawing near through Christ to Zacchaeus in all of that covenant planning. Every detail, including the announcing of the route that our Lord was going to take, the size of the crowd that was there that day, the position of that sycamore tree by the highway, the Savior stopping beneath that tree, Zacchaeus able to climb the tree, all of those details, they came together to ensure what? That God's eternal purpose declared in Luke 19 and 10, the Son of God is come to seek and to save that which was lost, that that purpose would be fulfilled that day in Zacchaeus' life. Thus the eternal counsel ran, almighty grace, arrest that man. And what he did for Zacchaeus, he has done for everybody who has ever been saved. Thou art near, O Lord, near in his character, near in his covenant, is also near in his concern or his compassion. The big question is, why does he bother with you or me? 
Why is he concerned about us among the teeming billions who are living and have ever lived and ever shall live? The psalmist was staggered by that thought. And so in Psalm 8 and 4, he said, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? And that same question is rephrased and repeated in Psalm 144 in the verse 3, Lord, what is man that thou takest knowledge of him, or the son of man that thou makest account of him? Charles Wesley was similarly staggered, and so he penned the lines, Whence to me this wealth of love? Ask my advocate above. See the cause in Jesus' face, now before the throne of grace. And then he went on, If I rightly read thy heart, if thy all compassion art, well, that's my invitation, bow thy ear in mercy by pardon and accept me now. That is why thou art near, O Lord, to convert me. And having converted me, to show concern and compassion towards me. Thou art near. O Lord, the reality of the nearness of God, the reassurance in the nearness of God. What difference does this knowledge, thou art near, O Lord, make in our lives? I mean, what impact does that have on us? One of the undisputed, undisputed giants of the missionary trail was Scottish Dr. David Livingstone. They described him as the pathfinder of Africa. As a young man, he went along to hear an address by a man who was a celebrated missionary of the time, Robert Moffat. Livingstone at the stage had been grappling with the question, what shall I do with my life? He'd completed his medical education. That involved two years of study in Glasgow. He was ready for some high calling that he could really put his utmost into and so his eyes this day are fastened on the speaker, Robert Moffat. And Moffat is up there on the platform with his flowing white beard and his vehement concern for Africa's perishing millions and the depth of his soul. He is rising up in Livingstone here, rising up to the challenge that the missionary is bringing, and especially one sentence that contained 20 words that emblazoned itself upon Livingstone's mind. Robert Moffat that day said, I have sometimes seen in the morning sun the smoke of a thousand villages where no missionary has ever been. And those words captured Livingstone's entire being. They fired a soul with a passion that ultimately only death could quench. Livingstone determined, I am going to Africa. And he'd be a forerunner for Christ on that dark continent. He would search out the thousand villages and other thousands where no missionary had ever been. And he would go there and be that missionary. Now to steal him and to sustain him, he heard a voice. God reassured him as he went to throw all that he had into the struggle by bringing the terms of the Great Commission heavily upon his heart, Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. 
Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy, Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. David Livingstone was on the bank of the Zambezi River. He's surrounded by fierce and furious savages who are threatening to kill him at any moment. Those spears can come hurtling through the air, through the darkness. Maybe an attack would begin at dawn. He didn't know, but he knew he was in danger. But he opened his tin box, and he took out his Bible. And he read a precious passage, best told in his own words that he wrote in his journal on the 14th of January, 1856, See, O Lord, how the heathen rise up against me, as they did to thy son. I commit my way unto thee, a guilty, weak, and helpless worm. On thy kind arms I fall. O Jesus, leave me not. Forsake me not. He's praying. Thou art near, O Lord. The journal contains another entry written the same night, evening. Felt, Livingstone said, much turmoil of spirit in view of having all my plans for the welfare of this great region knocked on the head by savages tomorrow. But I read that Jesus came and said, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth, and lo, I am with you always even unto the end of the world. And he said, it is the word of a gentleman of the most sacred and strictest honor. So there's an end of it. I shall take observations for latitude and longitude tonight. Though they may be the last, I feel quite calm now. Thank God. Those words, lo, I am with you, were underlined in his journal because they were first inscribed on his heart. And later, when he came back home for a while to visit, and he came to receive the degree of Doctor of Laws at the University of Glasgow, and he stood before the audience to speak that day, and people looking at him, they saw the evidence in his body of all the exposure that he'd been engaged in there, exposure to the elements exposure to fear and danger of privations. More than 30 attacks of tropical fever. His left arm had been crushed by lion's teeth, and that hung stiffly at his side that day. And the great assembly in the University of Glasgow, they were awed to silence, and they were melted to tears as David Livingstone related his experiences and then announced, I'm going back to Africa. I'm going back. But I return, he said, without misgiving and with gladness of heart. For would you like me to tell you what supported me through all the years of exile among people whose attitude toward me was always uncertain and often hostile? It was this, lo, I am with you always even unto the end of the world. On those words, he said, I staked everything and they never failed. I was never left alone. And he's sitting now in his little hut 
and he's back on the bank of a stream, and he's away into the interior of Africa again, and this time he's dejected in spirit. That strength has been sapped by all those repeated attacks of fever, and he's wondering, seriously, have I much longer to live? And his heart's bleeding as he looks and sees again the depravity of the people around him, and they're always fighting and plundering and killing, and they're capturing and selling each other into slavery and committing such terrible atrocities. He's tempted to wonder, will the light of the gospel ever dawn upon these wretched souls? And he shudders particularly as he remembers how just two hours earlier, these savages had grabbed hold of two men and before his very eyes had hewn them to pieces with an axe. And it seems it's only a matter of time before he becomes the victim of that same ferocity or he's cut down and off by some tropical disease. And then something like a moan comes from his lips and he murmurs, if only I had someone to talk to, someone who understands, somebody who cares. And he took his Bible and he read several favorite passages. Then he knelt, and that was the posture he always assumed in prayer. He knelt, good and gracious Jesus, thou art ever near. Thou knowest my yearnings after these people. Thou art my comfort and my keeper. Stay with me, Lord, till my work is done. Thou art ever near someone to talk to. Thou knowest somebody who understands. My comfort and my keeper, someone who cares. Stay with me. And the Lord's promise, Lo, I am with you always. I'm there all the way. And so accompanied like this and reassured like this, David Livingstone continued with his labors. And remember, the man died on his knees. He died in the act of prayer. His last words were praying words. He wasn't alone. In Africa, he's talking to someone. Thou art near, O Lord. And we could tell a similar story in the life of John Gibson Patton, missionary to the New Hebrides, many, many others. Of course, we don't have time now. Thou art near, O Lord, was their testimony. And that famous hymn, Nearer My God to Thee, is traditionally associated with RMS Titanic. Passengers reported the ship's band played the hymn as the Titanic sank. Nearer my God to Thee, even though it be a cross that raiseth me. The final verse that we don't have in our hymn book, verse 6, was added by Edward Henry Bickersteth, a better hymn writer than the one who wrote the rest of it. There in my Father's home, safe and at rest, there in my Savior's love, perfectly blessed, age after age to be, nearer my God to Thee, nearer my God to Thee, nearer to Thee. Thou art near. O Lord, the reality of the nearness of God, the reassurance in the nearness of God, and we'll be quick, the results from the nearness of God. What are the results 
of God being close to us. Many, many blessings. But I'm not going beyond the context of our verse in Psalm 119, verse 151. So I'm keeping to the context, thou art near, O Lord. Uh, what is the result of that? Well, there's protection. You'll see in verse 115, the enemy was close. They draw nigh that follow after mischief. They are far from thy loam. They were multitudinous. They were intimidating. Verse 157, many are my persecutors and mine enemies, yet do I not decline from thy testimonies. Verse 158 as well, they were wicked. They were rebellious. I beheld the transgressors and was grieved because they kept not thy word, but still, like a living stone, though the enemy was close, God was closer still. Thou art near, O Lord, and he was there for his protection. For the purpose as well for petition, petition. When we're assured of God's nearness, we pray to Him. We make our appeal, as Livingstone did in Africa, on the basis of God's mercy and compassion. We make that appeal. Verse 149, hear my voice. According unto thy loving kindness, O Lord, quicken me according to thy judgment. We pray with no small degree of earnestness. Verse 145, I cried with my whole heart. We pray with an expectation of an answer and with determination when answered, I'm going to serve God more. Verse 145 and 146, Hear me, O Lord, I will keep thy statutes. I cried unto thee, save me and I shall keep thy testimonies. So what benefit? We get protection, we have petition for the purpose of precept as well. God is here, and He's here to speak into our ear the words of life. Verse 151, our text today, Thou art near, O Lord, the rest of it, and all Thy commandments are truth. And that's what I want to deal with here. Then to confirm the truthfulness of His Word, the unchangeableness of His Word, 152, 160, concerning Thy testimonies I have known of old, that I was founded them forever. Thy Word, verse 160, is true from the beginning, and every one of Thy righteous judgments endureth forever. He does this to revive us by the application of the Word of God to our lives. And here we know when God's speaking into our ear and into our heart, God is revealing, I know everything about you. Everything is naked and open to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. We're told in Hebrews 4 and 13, and so from he can see us right across our lives, from pornography through to bitterness, he sees everything. And in verse 159, as we have mentioned, he wants that word to revive us. If ever the Word of God is going to be real, is going to be relevant, is going to be revolutionizing to us, we need God to be close, applying that Word. We need His nearness, just as Nicodemus did for salvation in John 3, just as the disciples at the end of Luke chapter 24 needed it for solace. We need the Lord to be near Him. We should be pleading this when? Day and night. Verse 147, 148, I prevented the dawning of the morning and cried, I hoped in thy word. Mine eyes prevent the night watches that I might meditate in thy word. You will know God's nearness when you draw close to him. Doesn't he say, draw near to me and I will draw near unto you? And we know as another result, 
his help in P in Psalm 150, Psalm 119, verse 153, reveals here the psalmist, he's in affliction. Consider mine affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget thy law. And he's wanting God what to do? Come near. Get me out of this. That's what he's pleading here. And he hawks. Back in 1872, sums up our desire, I need thee every hour. Most gracious Lord, no tender voice like thine can peace afford. I need thee every hour in joy or pain. Come quickly and abide, or life is vain. I need thee. Oh, I need thee every hour. Is not true and going to be true of 2024. Every hour I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come to thee, and I will be consoled and energized and encouraged if I can take this promise with me. Thou art near, O Lord.